Bible Interact is a group of Bible scholars and biblical archaeologists who promote the Hebraic nature of Scripture and view the two Testaments as one unified message. They explain how they use a first-century approach to searching the Scriptures, and they share their methods and discoveries for discussion and dialogue. They invite your comments and participation on BibleInteract.tv, where you can also find more teachings, self-study quizzes, webinars, and interviews. Shalom. I am Dr. Ann Davis with Bible Interact. I've been working on what we call the Gospel of John. This is session three. Let me very briefly summarize what I did in the first two sessions. I explained and showed to you that the book of John is not one of the four Gospels. There are only three Gospels. The book of John is not a Gospel. It is wisdom literature. It is Hebrew wisdom literature. And the purpose of the wisdom literature is to to make known the mysteries of who is God and what is he doing in this world. Now, the, the book of John was apparently written by the disciples of John. John himself would have been the one who started this group. Um, he... Uh, was may or may not have still been living when it was was written, but certainly his influence is there. And we re- refer to this group as the Johannine community. They were disciples of John. They were largely Jews for the most part. Uh, there were probably some Gentiles who had attached themselves to this group, and who and they all believed that Yeshua was the Messiah. So we have this Johannine community, and then there is really a, a, a quite an intense uh, tension between the Johannine community and what the Greek calls the Eudaioi. Now, we have translated Eudaioi as the Jews, but it was not all the Jews. It was the Jewish leaders, and sometimes they're identified as Pharisees, but they're, they're clearly the leaders of the people, not the people themselves. And um, they had the authority to... Um, uh, to condemn people to death, and we see here in, in the book of John that that they had condemned Yeshua to, to die, and and they also had the power to expel people from the synagogue, which was probably the, the worst possible thing other than death that could happen, because if you were expelled from the synagogue, uh, no one would have anything to do with you, and um, you, you were totally without any uh, connection to your community. So what we have here in the book of John is this Johannine community using the wisdom literature to explain uh, not just God the Father, but what God is doing through the Son. It's a very, very deep uh, book, and it's very Hebraic, so if you don't understand how to look at it in the Hebraic sense, you're going to get the surface, which is wonderful, but that's barely the surface. There's a whole lot more. So the book of John records seven signs that prove Yeshua is the Messiah whom God has sent with power and authority to speak in his name. So when Yeshua speaks in his name, acts on his behalf, he's, it's as if he were God. He's not God. He's the Son of God. But he's, he's, he has the authority of God. He's, um, and he's, he's doing everything in the name of the Father. 
The first sign was changing water to wine. But let me give you the list of the signs very briefly because you're, you're probably asking. The first one was changing water to wine. That was done at the wedding at Cana. The second was the healing of the royal official son. That occurred also at Cana. Then we have the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda the feeding of the 5,000 at the Sea of Galilee, and walking on water also on the Sea of Galilee. The sixth one is the healing of the man born blind. That occurs in Jerusalem. And finally, the raising of Lazarus at Bethany, which is just right outside of Jerusalem on the way into Jerusalem. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend the rest of this session talking about the first sign, changing water to wine at the wedding at Cana. And I'm going to do it in four parts. First of all, I, I want to take you to Cana with me. I've you know, been to the archaeological site or what we think is the archaeological site and give you a sense of, of where it is and, and, and the sense of being there in Cana. Secondly, I have got to explain the Hebraic sense of time. You simply cannot understand this sign if you're thinking Greek. You've got to be thinking Hebrew in regards to time. Third, Equally as important is the artistic nature of the language because that's where the deeper meaning is going to be. It's going to be in the artistry of the language. It's not going to be in the literal words, in the surface words. It's going to be in the artistry of the language. And finally, the message is that the disciples, now a disciple is anyone who has made Yeshua Lord, not in their head but in their heart so that they're committed to, uh, to serving him, following him, obeying him. Uh, disciples can take the kingdom of God, which is, pre- is future, and they can bring it into their lives today. They can actually walk in the kingdom of God today. That's the message that this sign is going to convey. So let's start now with, with this sign. And in John chapter 2, verse 11, we read, This beginning of his signs, uh, Jesus, Yeshua, did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is the the beginning of the sign. This is the first sign. And the result is it's going to manifest the glory of the Father through the Son and and the disciples. Notice it's disciples, not everybody. The disciples believed in him. So these signs really are for disciples, and I assume you're a disciple if you're listening to this program. So let me take you now to Cana. Cana is in the hills of the Upper Galilee. If you've been to Israel, you've probably been to Nazareth. And Nazareth is in the hills of the Upper Galilee. So uh, Cana is very close to that. I was, let's see, I was in Israel. This must have been maybe four or five years ago. I can't remember one of the times I was there. I was with a, an Israeli, an older gentleman, who was also a believer and he had a jeep. He took me in his jeep, and we, I had a list of places I wanted to go to that you can't, you ordinarily you couldn't go to, you know, in a in a regular in a regular vehicle. So one of them was this archaeological site of Cana. If you're up, you, Nazareth is is up high. You go you the road climbs up 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 to get to Nazareth. Now from Nazareth on the other side of that area of hills it drops down into a fairly wide valley and then the hills go up again so so the the valley is in the middle of the upper galilee and um yeshua to get to uh, to cana would have gone from nazareth which was up high he would have gone down cross that valley and then back up again and that's where you that's where you find cana and um it's a fairly small um archaeological site um 
there was no wall around it. It wasn't a walled community. It, it was a it was a fa- fairly small village, and and this is where the wedding was taking place. Now let's continue with the story. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So, of course, we we catch the third day, because the third day was when he was resurrected out from the dead. That resurrection is pointing to the end of time, because we, at some point, are also going to be resurrected to be one with God, to be with God. And, and we have to be in a righteous condition to do that. Now, it says, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, what we get is we get a cast of characters. And Jesus, and whose Hebrew name, of course, is Yeshua. I'm reading from the, from the New American Standard Bible, which uses the, the Jesus. But Yeshua and his disciples are the two main characters. So the disciples are a group, but they act as a character, and Yeshua is a character. Now his mother is there, the wine steward is there, but they are only, they're playing supporting roles. They're not playing major roles. So it's very important for you to understand that this story centers on Yeshua and his disciples. And you need to identify with the disciples. You are a disciple. If your heart is committed to making Yeshua Lord in your life, you are a disciple. And and I want you to identify with the disciples. Now, let's go into the Hebraic sense of time. The Greek sense of time, which is what we've been brought up with, is points on a line. So if something is past, it's over and it's done with. And the only way we can access it is like a history book or um, oral history or maybe archaeology can, you know, dig up artifacts so we can only access it through you know through this evidence of some time of a time past in terms of the future the future hasn't happened yet on the point of points on a line it hasn't happened yet so the only way we access the future is by our imagination you you can't really know the future you can imagine the future so the only thing valid in the greek sense of time is now is and is is what's happening now. The Hebraic sense of time is very different because God created time and therefore God is in time. So God is in all aspects of time. He's in the past, he's in the future, he's in the present, he's in all aspects of time. Now stop and think about it for a minute. To the extent that you are one with God, you are with him in all aspects of time. Take, for example, the story of the Exodus. That happened a long time ago. But Jews remember that on Passover Eve every single year. And when they remember it, they are there. And, and it, the story is told as if they were th- they're, they're there right now. They're there. And, and they're there now, and they say next year in Jerusalem. So, you know, now they're in, with the Exodus... And, and next year in Jerusalem. So, um, and and so let me I, let me explain it another way because the Hebraic sense of time is hard to grab a hold of. We read in the creation account that by the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. So the creation was completely, completely, completely complete. But take a look at yourself. Take a look at me. Are you complete? Are you righteous? 
are you out of this world and one with God? I, I mean, no, of course not. So in the Hebraic sense of time, it was complete in the beginning. It will be complete in the end. It is in the process of becoming complete now. That's the Hebraic sense of time. It's, um, it, it's not points on a line. All right? So what we have is in the beginning, we read in Genesis one twenty seven that God created man in his image. In his image he created he them. What is the image of God? It is perfect. It is righteous. It is pure. It is holy. It is all light. No darkness in it at all. And that's the way he created you. But there came the fall. Does that destroy what he did? No. That essence of God is still in you. Now, um, it he's he's bringing it out. He's... he's um, I mean, it's there, and it's kind of sitting there latent. He's kind, he's bringing it out. And with Israel, he brought it out with the law, so that if, if they followed the law, they were taking that righteousness in them and walking in it. Now, for those of us who believe in Yeshua, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. So the gift is a guide. That Holy Spirit is a guide. And we only have it through our faith in Yeshua. And it only guides us because of our faith in Yeshua. But it guides us in the ways of the law. That's what Paul tells us. So so we are in the process of taking that righteousness and, and making it happen in our lives. In the future, the end of time, we will be all righteous. We will be as we were in the beginning but at a higher level, by the way, which is very interesting to think about. So that's the Hebraic sense of time. Now, this is important because what is happening in, in the wedding at Cana, the wedding represents something future. Uh, the new wine represents something future, but Yeshua is bringing it to the disciples now. You can walk in the end times now. The end times are when you're righteous and you're one with God. You can do it now. All right, let's take a look now at the artistic language. The story goes on. Uh, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now, the people in ancient times didn't have books. They didn't have Bibles. They memorized scripture from the time they were little children, and they heard, they heard anything strange, anything unusual. Now, let me read it again. What do you hear? There were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Six, 20, 30. Something's going on here. And that's the artistic nature of the language. It doesn't give you the answer. It just tweaks your curiosity and you have to do the work. Now, first of all, the um, let's see. Let's just go to the numbers. All right, there are six stone water pots. The number six represents mankind. God created mankind on the sixth day. Um, and, 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 and then, what, so what about this mankind? Well, the, the creation account tells us that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and guard it. That's, it's, those are the, the, the Hebrew words are to work and guard. So he created man um, with righteousness in him and said, you, you, you can now, if you choose, serve me. And to serve me, you must work. You must work for me and you must guard my kingdom. So 
that's that's the number six. By the way, you can look up these numbers. Just go online and look for E.W. Bullinger, who wrote a book, Numbers in Scripture. It's the classic work. It was written over 100 years ago, but it's still the classic work for for the spiritual significance of numbers. Um, I go to leavenedwater.org, um, and they they not only have uh, printed the whole book because it's past the copyright time, They've printed the whole book, but it's very well organized um, and uh, very easy for you to find these numbers. So we've got six stone water pots representing mankind who have been told to work and guard. All right? That's what they've been told to do. That's what they're supposed to do. Now, you're identifying with the disciples, and this is a message for you. And then, uh, then we go to, let's see, we go to the number 20. All right. The number 20. It's not 20, it's 20 or 30 gallons, which catches the ear. Well, 20 or 30. 30, uh, 20 is uh, 10 doubled. 30 is 10 tripled. And that's the way the Hebraic mind is thinking about it. So 10 is a perfect number. So here you are, mankind. You're, you're in these stone water pots. And you, you are the outside of the water pot. And the water pot is stone because it was that that kept it pure. If you put it in a clay pot, the water would mix with the clay and would become impure. So the outside of the vessel is what God has made you. The outside of the vessel. Now, the water in there it is going. You you have the ability of going to twenty or thirty, two times the perfect number or three times the perfect number. That's you as a disciple, and that's that's what this is about. Now let's the story continues. Yeshua said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to the head waiter. Now, the the water is going to turn to wine. And we have two really powerful images in here. (coughs) We have the image of the wedding. And we have the image of the wine. And the wine is new wine. You know, in our culture today, uh, we drink aged wine. But they didn't in the ancient world. The new wine was the best wine, just like the the oil. The the oil that first comes off is the virgin oil. And the wine, the first wine that is pressed is the best wine. That's in the ancient world. That's the new wine. And but let's let's turn to the um to the wedding. The wedding is symbolic of the end of time when Yeshua, um, who now God the Father in the Hebrew scriptures is re- represented as as the bridegroom and Israel as the bride. Now it has expanded. It it hasn't changed. It it, it it you can't delete that. But Yeshua now represents the father, so he is going to be the bridegroom and all of God's children are um have you know are eventually going to be brought to God at some time. Um um, I've, all the work that I've done on the remnant, I can't explain here, but that explains a lot about the whole concept of salvation, who belongs to God, and what it means to be saved. And it's not just one lump, click your finger, everybody gets saved. It doesn't happen that way. There's a lot um, after the Great Tribulation that we tend not to see, and we need to start working on it and looking at it. So um, the wedding represents um, the end of time when when God comes together with the bride, and God's son Yeshua comes together with with the people, the bride. We we hear about that wedding in Psalm twenty three. 
the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You, you all know that. And it, and it talks about the now, today, guiding, leading, walking. And then it goes into the future. Okay. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's future. You have anointed my head with oil. So the enemies are all around, but they can't attack. And you've got this banquet table, and it's the banquet table of the of the wedding, the wedding banquet table. My cup overflows, surely goodness and loving kindness, and so forth. So that's the imagery of the wedding, um, which which is future. Now let's turn to the new wine because this is is really important. Okay, there were four tithes that uh, that the people gave to God. They gave the first fruits of the grain. They gave the new wine, which was the the best the wine that came off was pressed first. They gave the the new oil, the virgin oil, the the best oil, and the firstborn of their herd or flock. Which um, and now this is what they were giving to God. Now James tells us that we are now a kind of first fruit, so we now give ourselves to God. Not as dead sacrifices, but as living sacrifices, we give ourselves to God. So the new wine was one of the tith- one of the four tithes. The new wine was also what was in the temple, and we read that in Deuteronomy: "You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where He chooses to establish His name." That's in Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem. And what shall you have in the temple? The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always there in the temple, and the new wine is in the temple. And and now we get the new wine at the end of time, and that's the most important, the one I really want to draw your attention to. At the end of time, they will come. Now, this is in Jeremiah 31. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. And they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life will be like a watered garden, just like it was in the Garden of Eden, and they will never languish again. So what you have here is you have the imagery of the wedding, the imagery of the new wine, and Yeshua has brought it to the wedding at Cana. And he's brought it to his disciples. The story, remember, centers around Yeshua and his disciples. You are a disciple. And 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 this imagery, this whole message, is telling you that you can bring the kingdom of God into your life now. Now, this was a sign that the Johannine community was recording in the book of John. And this sign is a sign of who is God? What is he doing? God is the Father. He loves all of his children, and all of his children will be with him at some time in the future. But in the meantime, he is working with disciples. The disciples are the ones who are going to be in the remnant, and this is my work on the remnant. And uh, the remnant has a role to play. Um, and and in the millennial kingdom, the remnant is being prepared for their role, which will occur after the millennial kingdom when Satan is loosed and God comes down, and we see a battle at that time. Um, the imagery of the battle is in the book of Daniel, by the way, if you want to go to BibleInteract.tv. That's where we uh, we post all of our teachings. We've got well over 100 teachings. And just search for remnant, and you'll find the teachings on the remnant. And uh, also my my book on the parables, which you can get at Amazon, which is called Uncovering Mysteries in the Parables. What I do is I take 20 parables, and after each four, um, 
I have a chapter about the remnant because the parables are all talking about how to walk in the kingdom of God now and and it's talking to disciples um, and 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 teaching disciples you know how to bring God into their life through their Lord Yeshua that's what it's talking about so the book on the parables will have five different chapters and they go in progression um, and it's using the parables to help you understand how the parables are all about uh, the remnant and it, and it teaches you about the remnant that's in the book uncovering mystery the mysteries of the parables uh, through Haggadic Midrash that's what it's called but you can find it on uh, on uh, Amazon so the wedding at Cana is the first of the signs, of the seven signs that the Johannian community is, is presenting as wisdom literature to help us understand who is God the Father, what is the relationship of Yeshua to the Father. We'll do more about that in, in a future session. And really, most important of all, who are you? Who are you through your faith in Christ? That's probably the most important of all. So with that, uh, just let me wish you shalom, and we'll do more in the book of John next week.